ancestry doesn't always turn up heroes and royalty. So begins a Wall Street Journal article from the year 2013. The article documents the uptick in people interested in their ancestry and how some have had to deal with discovering a different ancestry than they had imagined they would. So when people find out what their ancestors have done, it can lead to soul-searching and, as the article says, identity confusion. Who am I? One genealogist tries to paint this in a more positive light. He says you should celebrate those discoveries because you have a colorful history. But can you imagine, maybe you have, but can you imagine how unsettling it would be to find out your ancestor was some war criminal or drug lord? The article concludes with the story of Jean Hibben, who had been told her grandfather, her great-grandfather, had participated in General Sherman's famous capture of Savannah in the Civil War. But after some research, she found he had never actually seen any action but had been discharged after being injured from excessive marching and a fall over a log. I mean, can you talk about disappointing, right? As we begin the Advent season, we're going to take a break from our study in the book of Exodus and spend some time in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples of Jesus, And he wrote this first gospel account that we have in our New Testament. He wrote primarily for a Jewish audience. And because of that, specifically sought to reveal Jesus to be the promised king of the Jews, of God's people Israel. And as part of his way of accomplishing that, he begins here in the passage Aaron has just really well read for us. You can congratulate him for that later. uh, With a genealogy the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This list will show Jesus' true colors, his true identity. And certainly, there will be nothing to be ashamed of in that legacy, right? With our time together this morning, I want to just consider two things, basically our theme for our service today. First, that Jesus is the promised one. And then second, that Jesus is the Savior. So first, Jesus is the promised one. And that's really the whole point of this genealogy. So this lineage of Jesus, this listing of his ancestors, shows us that way back, thousands and thousands of years before Jesus took on human flesh, God had planned in the fullness of time to bring his son into the world. So that first verse there is sort of a title for Matthew's entire gospel. He writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham were two primary figures in the Old Testament, both men to whom God made promises. So back in Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to Abraham and made a covenant with him. He told him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God told Abraham he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And eventually, through his children, the whole world would be blessed. Blessed. 
Understandably, that promise grew harder and harder for Abraham to believe and to hold on to because as he grew older and older, he still had not yet fathered a son. But when God finally provided that promised son, Isaac, in Abraham's old age, you remember what happened years later? God told Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac, that son in whom I've invested all my promises. There we see one of the most difficult tests in all of the Bible. Yet Abraham obeyed. He had faith. And at the last minute, God spared Isaac's life and provided a substitute. And when he did that, he reiterated his promise. Genesis twenty-two eighteen. He tells Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But as the Old Testament continues, we never see the final fulfillment of that promise. I mean, we see little hints, little clues along the way, but when, when will God finally keep his promise? Then comes Jesus. And in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says something should just stop us in our tracks. He says that that promise to Abraham was God preaching the gospel to him. He says that reference to Abraham's offspring was a reference ultimately to Jesus. And here Matthew tells us the same thing. He says that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. How would God bless all the nations of the world through the seed of Abraham? By that one future descendant, Jesus, who would shed his blood so men and women from all nations could be brought into the people of God. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew also says Jesus is the son of David. David was another figure in the Old Testament with whom God made a covenant. So Lee read for us earlier from 2 Samuel chapter 7. that God promised King David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That promise was, was first realized in David's son Solomon, but Solomon had a throne that did not last forever. It became apparent that another heir to the throne would need to appear to finally fully fulfill God's promise, reign forever on the throne of David. And then comes Jesus, the king. And the angel in Luke chapter 1 says to Mary, Do not be afraid. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Matthew is making his point obvious. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Indeed, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's entire plan to save, of all his promises to his people throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And so in these first few verses of the New, 
We see that clearly shown. Church, the Bible goes together. All of it. We don't pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New. He's the same God with the same plan to send the same Savior. So the gospel, the arrival of the Savior, is foreshadowed and promised all throughout the Old Testament and very fittingly culminates here in the very first verse of the New Testament. And as we consider that, our faith is strengthened. We see God keeps his promises. See, as we read Matthew's gospel, we see that he doesn't want us to believe in Jesus merely because he's a a wonderful miracle worker or a good teacher. He wants us to believe in Jesus because Jesus has come to fulfill God's promises. Jesus is the one to bring the blessing that was promised to Abraham and to bring it to all nations. Jesus is God's Davidic king come to reign over his people. Matthew calls him Jesus Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means anointed one, Messiah. It means Jesus has come to reign like God had said he would. So church, this, this passage is most likely one of those sections in the Bible we skip over in our devotions. Or if we have to read the whole Bible in a year, we sort of breeze by it because it's, it's boring and those names are really hard to pronounce. But to the Jews Matthew is writing to and, to and to us as we begin to dig and to understand, this genealogy actually becomes incredibly important because it sort of states in technicolor up front that Jesus is the king. That he isn't some random teacher who has come along and garnered a following, but that he is, as one author says, in a royal line to fulfill the promises of God. And it seems like Matthew has built this idea of Jesus' kingship into the very fabric of this genealogy. So look at verse 17. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There were more than 14 generations, right? There were more. We can look at other parts of the Bible and see that there were more people in those generations. But Matthew's not being unfaithful. He's merely making a point. He's skipping over some of these generations to show 14, 14, 14. Why? One scholar explains that the Hebrew language gave number values to certain letters. And so when you take the consonants of David's name, DVD, and add up those letter values in the Hebrew, you get 14. And so in Matthew's structure of his genealogy, he's sort of whispering, David, king. There's this whisper even as we read these names, that a greater David has arrived, that God's great king has come. Dear brothers and sisters, do you see how this genealogy should encourage us to trust God this morning? Jesus was never his plan B. 
No, God forever planned and then finally perfectly executed the arrival of his king. At just the right time, Jesus came. Do you see how God's character is on display in this list? So many of us, I assume, will go window shopping over the next few weeks. Uh, Maybe not that old kind of window shopping that I still love to do where you get bundled up and walk past shop windows with your breath visible in the air. Most of us instead will probably go to browser windows. See what I did there? Different kind of window. And fill up cyber shopping carts with gifts for loved ones. But regardless, this is the time of year where we rely on display windows, whether on our computer screen or elsewhere, to kind of give us an accurate portrayal of what we might purchase. Well, church, here in this genealogy, we see the greatest of display windows into the character of God. We see a grand display of who he is and what he's like. He is patient. He is faithful. He is thorough. He is not waylaid by unforeseen circumstances. He is not disturbed by unbidden distractions. He is not thrown off by unknown advances of the enemy. He is not delayed by undesired opposition. God's plan is always carried out. Christian, do you see how you can trust him? I mean, if he carries out to perfection this sort of cosmic plan of redeeming sinful mankind, don't you think that he can work through and control even the minutest concerns of your life? J.C. Ryle was a pastor in England in the 1800s. And he wrote about this passage and he said, true Christians should remember this lesson and take comfort. Their father in heaven will be true to all his engagements. He has said that he will save all believers in Christ. And if he has said it, he will certainly do it. I wonder if you've ever looked at this genealogy before and seen it as comforting. But Christian, where are you struggling to trust God today? With your kids? Your job? Your finances? Your physical or mental health? Your future? Trust in the God that is so clearly on display in this genealogy, the one who always keeps his promises to his people. Jesus is the promised one. Second point then, Jesus is the Savior. So as we dig into this list and investigate these names, I think we can learn two things about Jesus' salvation for his people. The first thing is that he has come to save sinners. See, as we, as we study this genealogy, we're confronted with an uncomfortable truth. And that is that this list includes super messed up people. 
Now, these people really need a savior. They were these ancestors of God's king, but they didn't just need God's king to come rule over them. They needed God's king to come lay down his life for them. So just consider some of these names with me. Consider Abraham. Abraham was a liar, multiple times telling falsehoods about Sarah, his wife, that almost got both of them into deep trouble. Consider Jacob. He was a deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright. Consider Judah. He had an extremely inappropriate relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, by whom Perez was born. Look at Tamar. She brought Judah into that sinful relationship by presenting herself to him as a prostitute. Look at Rahab. She was also a prostitute and for a much longer period of time than Tamar. Look at David. David wanted Bathsheba so badly, he set it up so that her husband would be supposedly killed in the line of battle and then he could take the dead man's wife for his own. Look at Solomon. He was a womanizer who strayed from God in his later years to worship false idols. I mean, I have to even use code words here so that not everybody gets it, right? I mean, look at Judah and Tamar later, and you'll see that wasn't even as bad as I said it was. It was worse than I said it was. And we're not done, folks. Look at Rehoboam. He was a rebellious leader under whose reign Israel split into two. Look at Uzziah. It's written in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Look at Ahaz. He was even worse than Uzziah. Actually offering human sacrifices to his idols. Look at Hezekiah. Displeasing God in his pride. Look at Manasseh. In 2 Kings 21, we read that, quote, he shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Seriously, church, like, if you were to dig up this ancestry online, if you submitted your DNA test and found out these were the people who you came from, you would never want anybody to know. You would be humiliated. This is a shameful list. Jesus' lineage is super messy. A sort of who's who of sinful screw-ups. So is this a mistake? Did God or Matthew kind of overlook a few details? And more than that, I mean, if, if God is sovereign, why didn't he make sure Jesus was brought into the world with a better family history? And if Matthew cared so much about the Jews worshiping Jesus, why did he include all these names at the beginning of his gospel? Well, maybe, maybe we're to learn here that Jesus didn't come to rescue put-together people. That he didn't come to save those who didn't think they needed saving. That he came to rescue messy people. Later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 9, the Pharisees, the sort of religious elite of Jesus' day, 
find Jesus eating with known sinners. And they ask how he could do such a thing. And the response Jesus gives is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus means he has not come for people who are ignorant of their sin-sick hearts, who strut around like they have everything figured out, but that he has come for those who see what their hearts are made of, those who understand they are far worse than even they can know, those who admit that the thoughts of their hearts and how they've sinned against God are worthy of damnation, those who yearn for mercy, who cry out for healing, who desperately look for a Savior. No one is righteous. But Jesus has come for those who know that. He's come for messy people. He hasn't come to to save those clinging to sort of the last shreds of their own reputation. He has come for those who have given up ever pleasing God on their own and instead plead for his mercy. Church, Matthew makes no effort whatsoever to sugarcoat Jesus' lineage. And we cannot pretty ourselves up in order to come to Jesus. We need to come as we are. Not because he just accepts us as we are, but because he saves us as we are and makes us acceptable. He takes our sin and washes it away and gives us his perfect righteousness and says to his father, they are acceptable in your sight because of what I have done by dying in their place for their sin. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should know that being a Christian doesn't mean living a holier-than-thou life and looking down on people who curse and smoke and drink. Being a Christian is not primarily about what you do but about who you trust. Being a Christian means giving up any notion of being good enough for God. Really, the only qualification for you to become a Christian is for you to realize that you could never please God on your own. That you need a Savior. That you need someone good enough to die for you and to give you his perfect status. To stamp on you, you, on your heart, accepted, righteous, perfect. Dear friend, Jesus has done that. And that offer is open for you. See the the blackness of your heart. And then rejoice as you see your eyes, turn your eyes, lift your eyes to God's solution for your sin problem, God's healing for your sin cancer, his perfect only savior hanging under his judgment on the cross, taking all his wrath 
that should be yours, bearing your sin on his back so he can be judged and you can be saved. Friend, turn to that Jesus this morning. There's no other way to be saved. In him, there is fullness of joy, fullness of hope, real salvation. If you have questions about that, we totally get that. We'd love to talk with you more about it. You can talk to me afterwards. I'll be at the back door. You can talk to somebody who's been up here leading singing. We'd love to tell you what it looks like to put your hope in Christ. And beloved church family, can you see the challenge here for us? As one of your pastors, I think that one of our greatest temptations as a church in Western Loudoun is a tendency to want to always look nice, put together, good religious folk. And that's not the gospel. I think this passage urges us to kill that temptation before it will kill us. To realize that we are, church, we are not doing Jesus a savior, but Jesus a favor by following him. He doesn't need us. We need him. We desperately need him just as much today as we did yesterday. I, I can't think of anything then that would kill our enthusiasm for Jesus, our affection for our Savior, quicker than living like we sort of just really don't need that salvation. Maybe we need it to give us a kickstart, but we're actually pretty good people, and we present ourselves pretty well, and actually Jesus is lucky to have us. living like the Gospels for the bad people out there instead of the bad person in here. Dear Christian, realize yet again this morning that you are in serious need of a Savior. Not just years ago when you trusted and repented in Him, but right now, today. Give up trying to band-aid the sickness of your soul. Give up trying to put religious makeup over your scars as you get dressed up for Sunday morning. The wonderful news of Christmas is that Jesus has come for screw-ups like you and me. Again, J.C. Ryle says, We see here that no one who partakes of human nature can be beyond the reach of Christ's sympathy and compassion. Our sins may have been as black and great as those of any whom Matthew names, but they cannot shut us out of heaven. What good news, church. This morning, let's rejoice afresh in this gospel, this proclamation that there is hope for sinners like us, that Jesus, that King Jesus, has come to save sinners. And then finally, let's see here that Jesus' salvation and why he's come is that he's come to save sinners everywhere. See, one of the highlights we see in this genealogy is the presence of non-Jews. Rahab, a Canaanite. Ruth, a Moabite. They were outsiders brought in to make up the line of people leading to Christ. They hadn't been the primary recipients of God's promises, and yet here they are being drawn near, brought near, by the love of God. 
dear church, just reminds us that the news of Christmas, the advent of the king, is a call to all nations, all peoples. Jesus didn't come for the Jews alone. He has come for the world. He has come as the non-discriminating worldwide savior. So Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we are in this legacy of sinners saved by God from all peoples. So as we begin begin this, this Advent season, let's pray together that we would be faithful to proclaim that the King has come. That we would be courageous in our family get-togethers, in our social media posts, in our interactions with coworkers, classmates, neighbors, to share that this time of year is not primarily a time for family or gifts or music or food, as wonderful gifts as those things are. But it's a time to switch allegiance, to turn to the king, to be saved. Church, let this be no begrudging duty for us. But as we realize yet again our need and God's provision for our need, let this become an exciting adventure. This, this adventure of heralding the news that the king has come. There is no better way to celebrate Christmas than by sharing the gospel. So will you this week? Will you pray for opportunities and for the joy to take those opportunities when they come. Will you ask me next week if I've shared the gospel? Let's speak out together this season, rejoicing that our God is faithful to his promises and has sent his son to save sinners everywhere. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing truths we see in this genealogy. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray for brothers and sisters in our midst this morning who are struggling to trust you. Lord, may this of all passages remind them of your steadfast faithfulness. And we pray for those of us who find it all too easy to look holy without being holy. Lord, forgive us and free us in Christ to be who we really are and in that way to pursue true glory and sanctification in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to see Christmas it's not just a time for us, but a time for mission, for your word to go out. May your name be proclaimed here in our community and around the world this season for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen.